big questions that um, people, if they're not asking it out loud, they're at least asking it to themselves, a question about faith. And a lot of times people don't ask the question out loud because it almost sounds like it's uh, not a good question you should be asking. And the question is simply, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know that God really hears your prayers? How do you know that if God does hear your prayers, that He's going to answer your prayers? How do you know that the Bible said, because back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, when it was talking about the coming of Christ, the prophet was, he called him Emmanuel, God with us. How do you know He's with us? It says in the New Testament that not only would He be with us, but then He would be in us. So He's not only with us, but He's in us. How do you know? I mean, that's the question we ask. That's the question that kind of comes to our minds. And sometimes we think that we shouldn't ask that question out loud. We think that we shouldn't come to the place where we're we're really coming and grappling with the difficult things of our faith. Because you know what? We think that if we ask that question, we're going to offend God. Guess what? His shoulders are pretty broad, and he's not easily offended. He's offended by sin but he's not offended by our questions. He's not offended if we're skeptics. And it's okay to be a skeptic. Do you know who a skeptic was in the, in the um, New Testament? We all know him. Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, right? And, and what did God do when Thomas said, I'll never believe unless I can put my, hand, my fingers in his side or in the nail wounds? Jesus showed up and said, here's the evidence, Thomas. Go ahead. See this wound right here? Stick your finger in there. And then you put it in. Here's my side. Here's all the wounds. Do you believe now? And Thomas just said, Lord, I believe. Forgive me for my unbelief. You know what Thomas did after that? Because he kind of falls off the map as an apostle. He went to India and planted the first church in India. I have some friends up in Canada who came from the village where that first church was planted. And that church building that they met in still stands today. And it's amazing, everybody in that, in that village, they have what we would call Christian names because um, I may have told you this before, the father of, uh, the, from India, his name was John Thomas. And he got his, his wife passed away, so he remarried a woman whose husband had passed away, and she had a son named Thomas John. It was really confusing when you called their home. Is John there? Which one? John Thomas or Thomas John? Uh, I don't even know anymore. But that's what Thomas did. Doubting Thomas, he got the evidence that he was asking for. And so what happens is with, as a skeptic, we come and we want to present our questions that we're a little bit skeptical about to God, but somehow we've been taught maybe that it's wrong to question God. And guess what? God's going like, it's not wrong. Listen, any question that you have, he's already had to deal with. It doesn't put him off. It doesn't scare him. He's not offended by it. What he does is he welcomes your questions because he wants to give you the answer because when you get the answer, then you'll grow in your faith. So it's okay to be a skeptic. The problem is, is there are people who are cynics. And the difference between a skeptic and a cynic is a skeptic says, I need some evidence. 
A cynic is, I have all the evidence I need, but, I need, but I'm still not going to believe. And they turn and they walk away from God. So, when we think about this relationship we're in with God and the journey He's taking in a, us on, one of the fundamental truths about the journey is that the purpose of the journey is to create in us an image in us that looks more like Jesus every day. That's the goal. That's what God really wants us to do is to become more like Jesus. He wants us to be more like Jesus in our attitude. He wants us to be more like Jesus in our conduct and behavior. He wants us to be more like Jesus in the things that we say, the things that we think, and the, and the way that we present ourselves to people. He, that's the whole purpose of the journey. If you want to put a theological term on it, you would call it sanctification. It's that process in which God keeps refining who we are in character and purpose. He keeps taking us from where we've been to where he wants us to go. And the great news is that on that little journey, on that path, that journey that God's taking us on, he never gets disappointed with the progress we're making. But he never gives up on the little progress that we have made. He's going to go like, you know what? You're doing great but I think you can do a little bit better. So he's going to give you a little bit of a push, a little bit of a nudge. All of a sudden, you're dealing with something in your life. You're going like, where did that come from? Why is that thing creeping into my life already right now at this point? I think I, you know, I was really doing well, and now I've got this issue in my life that God's calling me to deal with. What do I do with it? And God says, trust me as I lead you on this journey, on this path. And it's, it's one of those ones that is really uh, interesting as you walk through it because there's a lot of things that Jesus does to us. And as we're studying uh, John's first letter to the churches, he tells the church that we are never more like Jesus than when we love others. And that's including when we love our enemies, when we love our neighbors as ourselves, when we, we love God's people. And that's probably the most important one is when we have love one for another, we are, are presenting the character of Jesus to a world around us. And they're looking at it, and they're looking with awe. Because they can't believe that this group of people in here, who comes from all kinds of different backgrounds, we have recovering Catholics, recovering Baptists. I mean, we're all recovering from something, aren't we? Amen? Praise hallelujah. You'll get it. Matter of fact, you want to know what I'm recovering from? Sin. I'm recovering sinner. Welcome to the 12-step program. It takes a lifetime. Hi, my name's Ken, and I'm a sinner. Let's try it again. You guys are a little slow on the uptake this morning. Hi, my name's Ken, and I'm a sinner. All right, guess what the good news is? I'm a sinner who's been turned into a saint. Praise the Lord. Well, you know, in this, in this thing, as we are learning what it means to, to love our fellow Christ followers, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, it's, it's the reason why God and Jesus calls us to step into this love. It's not because he wants us. I mean, it's part of the byproduct, but the main purpose isn't that we have a more peaceable life. The main purpose isn't that we 
we as a church get along way better than anybody else, any other group in town. That's not the main purpose. The main purpose for us to love one another is because when we do love one another, that expression is moving us more into the direction of being more like Christ than anything else. And the, the other main product that comes out of that is, is that when people see us loving one another from all these different backgrounds, it all points to Jesus. It's never about us, and it's always about Jesus. Matter of fact, you know, when, when Jesus was in the upper room with the, the disciples, they were having the last meal, and Jesus comes, and he's, I mean, he is turning the fire hydrant on with his teaching that he's giving to them. Um, you know, it's, it's in John chapter um, 13, 14, 15, 16, it's, it's about abiding. In 17, it's about uh, the, the high priestly prayer that Jesus offers up and he prays. Guess who he prays for? He prays for us to his Father. But in that time, as he's talking to his, the 12 that are there celebrating the Passover meal with him, the last one, he says to them in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Get this. Follow this next statement. It says, by this, all people, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have loved one for another. The greatest tool for pointing people to the reality of Jesus is our expression of love to one another in here. But not only in here. Out there. Because guess what? There are people meeting in churches today, right now. They're worshiping Jesus, the same Jesus we worship. They're preaching the gospel, the same gospel we preach. They love Jesus as much as we love Jesus. And we are to love them as well. It's, they're not a different church. They're the same church meeting in a different location. And so what we do is we come together because what Jesus is telling us to do is that to express our love to one another so that others will know who he is. And that's the result of loving one another, just as Jesus has loved us. It's the greatest witness of Jesus being the Son of God and being the only validation of salvation that is presented to the word to the world. Jesus validates God's intention to save the world, and he validates it through our love for one another. Now, here's the problem. Because what happens is that our sin enters into our lives. Even as a Christ follower, we're, we're given to temptation, and, and a lot of times we say no to temptation because we've grown so much in love with Jesus that now we're able to go like, I love Jesus more than I love stepping into this sin, and so I'm saying no. But once in a while, we mess up, and we give in to the temptation that's before us, and we commit a sin. You know what happens at that moment when we commit that sin? The love connection that we have with the Father is now tainted with sin. Therefore, as we are to love one another, as Jesus has just loved us, it becomes almost impossible because we have the sin issue that we haven't dealt with. 
That's why 1 John 1.9 is so highly important. You've heard me say this so many times. That's why John said it. He put it at the beginning of his letter because he wants us to reference back to it. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we do that, it opens up the, the love channel between us and God again, which then makes it possible for us to step in and to love one another just as Jesus has loved us. Here's our problem. If we're left to our own desires, if we are left to our own choices, if we are left to our own inclinations, more times than not, what we're going to do, and you're not going to like the word I'm going to use, but it's the one that the Bible uses, so I'm going to stick with it. It's pretty good. More times than not, we will choose wickedness over righteousness. Wickedness. Let me just describe what wickedness is. Wickedness is doing anything that sets itself up against the will of God. Disobedience. Every time you step into disobedience, whether it's telling a little white lie or losing your temper, letting the sun go down on your anger, being mean, saying harmful things to other people, anything that you do, it's first an offense to God and then to us. And so when we're left to do our own things, a lot of times we would rather do what comes easiest, our default. Sin is our default language. God rescued us from that. And the reason we know that that we have a, a problem with this is because the prophet Jeremiah, he said it. He said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, wicked sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Guess what? God understood right from the get-go. He knew that we were going to have this heart problem. He knew that our heart, along with our motives, along with the temptation, along with the sin in our life, we had a heart issue. And the only one that can, can fix our heart issue is God himself. He made the declaration about our heart. He told us what we already knew about our heart, and all we have to do now is agree with God that our heart is desperately wicked and and that we would rather do sinful things than righteous things. And so God's, you know, not surprised by any of these things. And He's the one that has the intervention to make the necessary changes in our lives. Now, it's not surprising at all that God has told us that we have a heart issue, but the bigger, not big surprise, but the bigger thing for us, and maybe you aren't surprised by it, is that he will step in and give us what we so desperately need. And that's found by the prophet Ezekiel when he said, when God said to Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. That was a prophetic word about what was going to happen in the future because of what Christ was going to do on the cross. As long as Jesus stayed in heaven, as long as Jesus was walking on this planet, until that very moment when he went to the cross, he, was, he died, 
He was buried, and on the third day, he was raised to new life. At that moment, when he was raised to new life, we got a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. The process of receiving a new heart or having a heart transplant is only done by the work of our triune God. Listen, don't get it mixed up. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are involved in every aspect of your life. The Father is the one that makes the initiative. He he sets forward and He says, Listen, son, I want you to come into relationship with me. And he keeps giving that call. It's the Father's call into your life. The Father's call. Believe in my Son. Believe in my Son. Come to my Son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And all of a sudden, one day we respond to that, and we come to Jesus, and Jesus says, like he said to so many, your sins are forgiven. And then after our sins are forgiven, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and what he does is he transplants into our heart a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And it's only by that that we know that. Now let's go to 1 John chapter 4, and and it says in verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. Remember when I started off this talk, I said, How do you know? How do you know? How do you know? This is how we know. This is how we know that we abide in Him and He abides in us because He gave us His Spirit. Okay, so the bottom line is this, is that our abiding in God is predicated on the fact that we have received the Holy Spirit into our lives. And in order for us to go on, we need to know who has the Spirit, when did they receive the Spirit, and what does it look like to receive the Holy Spirit? Jesus told his disciples um, after he was crucified and raised from the dead that he had to go back to his Father in heaven because until he went to the Father in heaven, the promised Holy Spirit wouldn't come. And so he had to go so that the Spirit could come because when the Spirit came, he was going to step into our lives and give us everything we need. He would teach us and he would help us. He would comfort us. In our time of sorrow, he would admonish us with the word of God. He would convict us and convict the world of sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And he empowers us to live and love as God has called us to live and love. But how do we know that? Well, in Ephesians, when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he said this right at the very beginning of that letter. He said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So let me help you. Let me just put it really plainly in in layman's terms. For those of you who have stepped into faith with Jesus Christ, where you came and you said, I can't do it. You're the only one that can do it for me. Transplant my heart. Take my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh. Forgive my sins. I want to walk in newness with you. As soon as that thought passed through your mind that I need Jesus more than I need anything else, bam! Just like that, the Holy Spirit entered into your life and you were indwelt with the Holy Spirit to live a life that God's called you to live. It isn't something that's 
that's like only for elite people because it seals our, our life with the whole promised Holy Spirit. We have this guarantee of our inheritance. You know what the inheritance is? Eternity with Jesus. It outweighs your 401k in a heartbeat. I'm telling you right now. Even with the stock market doing as well as it does, guess what? They're using whatever you're getting out of the stock market to pave the streets up in heaven. Wow. Yeah. So, we have this thing going on because Paul says the moment that we heard the true gospel about Jesus, we stepped into the face. At that moment, the promised Holy Spirit came into our lives. And, and that's, that's the assurance that we have. That's what it means when it says because he gave us his spirit, we know we abide in him. And he abides in us. You know, in, Paul, Paul wrote a lot of different letters to a lot of different churches that he had uh, been a missionary to. And so he wrote one to the church in Rome. And he, he said something like this to the Christ followers there. He said exact, not something like this, exactly this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Get this, are you looking at it? Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Jesus. He doesn't abide in you. You don't abide in him. Is that a big deal? Well, it may not seem like a real big deal right now. But it's going to be a big deal one day. One day is going to be a big deal. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. So what does it look like? And how do we know that we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us? You know, the Spirit of God works in conjunction with us. It's, it's not like all of a sudden the Spirit of God came upon us and we were, you know, we peeled ourselves out of a cocoon and became, you know, went from being a, a, a little worm into becoming a butterfly. That's not what it is. Remember at the beginning when I talked and I said the word we put to this, the theological word we put to this is called sanctification? That's the process. And, and how do we know, though, that the Holy Spirit is abiding in my life? How do I know that? What, 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 can, I, what can I just take to the bank on that? Well, thankfully, God, through His Holy Spirit, prompted the authors of the New Testament to give us the evidence, remember, the skeptic. How do I know? I need some evidence to know that I've really got the Spirit of God living in my life. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. Well, that's okay. That's fine. Let me give you the evidence, God said. I'll, I'll show you the evidence. And so here's what the evidence looks like. And the evidence is actually found in Galatians 5. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The evidence of being filled with the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. I know, you guys, your minds are just blown away right now, right? You're like, wow. Sorry, I have a cold. Um, now, there's a lot of things that people will bring to the table that says, look, 
I'm in God. God's in me. And we do these things. And here's my evidence. Well, I'm going to tell you something. If the evidence that they're presenting is not the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit that's driving them is not the Spirit of God. I can tell you. And because we have the gifts that the Spirit gives to each of us, right? I mean, we all have gifts. God's given you a, a gift He wants you to use for the kingdom of God. But I know for a fact, because I've seen it with my own eyes, that the enemy of our soul can counterfeit the gifts. He counterfeits the gifts and people buy into it because he masquerades as an angel of light. He comes as an angel of light saying, no, no, look what I've got. This is really great. Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal somebody. I'm going to give you a prophetic word. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something you don't know about yourself that somebody else is going to know about you. And it's all like mystical and everything. We're going like, wow. But then if you take a look at their life and you start to go through and you say, all right, so now show me, because it's the fruit of the Spirit, and we're supposed to test every spirit. Is there a spirit of love? Is there a spirit of joy? Is there a spirit of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? The list of the fruit of the Spirit, that list that He produces in our lives as we walk with Him in obedience, the first one on that list is what? Love. That, okay, so here we have John giving a whole bunch of attention to love. Jesus gave the commandment to his disciples, the new commandment, to love one another just as I have loved you. And now Paul, in his wisdom and, and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the first fruit of the Spirit on the list is love. It's not a coincidence, folks. God doesn't just kind of go like, oh, man, this is really, I didn't even see that one coming. He's like, no, look, this is so important because this fruit of the Spirit, it's that agape love that we're talking about from God that helps us to love even our enemies. So why does John and Paul say that love is so important? Because of all the virtues that we receive, of all the gifts that we're going to have, all that God gives us, there are only three that are going to remain. And Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So here we have faith, hope, and love. Those are the things we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, are going to last. Guess what? You are not going to the gift that God has given you to serve this church. You will not need it in heaven. It's going to go away. It's going to disappear. Because you're going to be in the presence of Jesus. You don't need it anymore. But faith, hope, and love, He wants those things to be distinguished in your life, not only now here on earth, but all through eternity. And the greatest one of those is love. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. And that's the greatest expression of Jesus in our life is when we love other people the way God's called us to. So... Let's continue on through, through some of the rest of this, the fruit of the Spirit. We have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Now listen, to be a joyless Jesus follower is a contradiction in words. I'm not saying that, you know, 
all right, I don't want you to be kind of one of those candy-coated fake Christians that always has a smile on your face, and somebody comes walking up to you, you know, and I should put a picture of Phil up here right now because he's a mess. He took a, he took a tumble on Friday. He was sick. They were sending him home early. He hit some ice. I mean, he has a cut above his eyebrow here, and he has a big old black eye right here. He looks like he got in a fight with a pastor. Pastor abuse. And, you know, he looks horrible. But guess what? Even though he doesn't feel very good and he looks pretty horrible, he still has the joy of the Lord in his heart. That's because that's the fruit of the Spirit. If you are a joyless Christ follower, stop sucking on lemons. Don't be a lemon sucker, because guess what happens to lemon suckers? They suck the joy out of other people's lives. So knock it off. Let Jesus bring the joy into your life. That's, that's what he says. My spirit will produce joy in your life no matter what your circumstances are. We're not asking you to be phony. We want you to be real. If you're having a really crappy day, just say so, because guess what's going to happen when you tell us that? We're going to pray for you. Because when we pray for you, then the manifest presence of Jesus shows up and all of a sudden what has been a really crappy day now becomes a really sweet lemonade that you're drinking. You're going, praise Jesus. Or as we like to say in this church, praise hallelujah. So that's the joy thing. And then you go to the whole thing about peace. When we have the, the Spirit giving us peace in our lives... We bring peace to the relationships we're in. We're helping those around us find peace in their relationships. When we come to patience, right? Everybody wants patience. Everybody's going to ask God for patience. No, because there's this myth out there. Hey, don't ask Jesus for patience because the first thing he's going to do is he is going to mess you up. (laughs) He is going to bring stuff into your life and you're going to go like, Oh, man, I'm blowing it. I don't have any patience. Why, Jesus? Why? I'm never asking for patience again. That's not what Jesus does. If, he, if you're asking for it, he's not going to go like, oh, I'm going to hold it back here, and I'm going to send in little trouble right here just to teach you. No. He's going like, you want patience? I'm going to give you patience. Matter of fact, I'm going to double it up for you so you get a double measure of my patience. And you go like, oh. Okay, so it's okay to ask. Yeah, you should be asking for patience all the time. You, you move on from there and you go to kindness. Who doesn't need a little, uh, a little more kindness in their life and in their day? When you are walking in the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, you will become God's kindness dispenser to those around you. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness are virtues by which God will be glorified in your life. And then the last one, self-control. Self-control. Okay, if you just nudged your husband, your wife, your kids, you just blew it because you lost self-control. Got you, didn't I? You didn't see it coming. You're going like, hey, you need self-control. You just lost it. You didn't have any self-control. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to do anything. Jesus will take care of you later. Not a prophetic word, just maybe a thought. So here's the deal with the fruit of the Spirit. 
It's the spirit that produces them in your life. But it is also not something that automatically happens. You have to be participating with the spirit in order to have the fruit of the spirit. It's a participation thing. God has never called you just to sit there like a slug and try and absorb it all. He wants you to be walking with him so that you're walking in obedience. You walk in the spirit. And as you walk in the spirit, he produces fruit in your life as you're obedient to the things he's calling you to be obedient to. All of this comes together because he wants us to know what it's like to have the the empowerment of the Spirit in our life so we know what it's like to abide in Christ and to have Christ abiding in us. We're never going to be free from difficulties. I want you to get this point. Just because you're walking with the Spirit, because you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life, doesn't mean you are going to be difficult, free life. It doesn't mean that you're not going to run into troubles. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have sorrow or suffering because the Bible tells us that you're going to have that stuff. What it does tell you is that you've got someone who's going to help you get through it differently than you would have before. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Romans 5 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Your suffering, if you're suffering right now on any level, physical, mental, emotional, It is going to produce endurance and character and hope. And in that, because God loves us, He doesn't disappoint us. His love has been poured into our hearts. And we've seen that when we have come to faith in Christ and received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will produce fruit in our lives. And the evidence that we are truly following Christ is that there is no more that we need to know except this found in Romans 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Wow. The Spirit tells you, you're all right, you're a child of God. Don't fear, you're a child of God. Don't go crazy, you're a child of God. Trust me, you're a child of God. That keeps coming back to us time and time and time again. Now listen, I don't know if if you've had the same experience as I have, but I'm pretty sure that there are a bunch of you in here that have had the experience that we've had before. And that experience is simply this, that when you're at an event or maybe you're stuck in the airport for 15 hours and you're just kind of hanging around, but you bump into somebody you have never met before in your life and you enter into this conversation And all of a sudden, as you're talking with that person, you are on the same wavelength. You're talking about the same kind of things. Spiritual discussion comes up. Jesus comes up. And all of a sudden, the light bulb comes on between the both of you, and you both realize that you are Christ followers. And you're like, you're, and and, and you knew it. You knew there was something because the Spirit of God that's in you and the Spirit of God that's in them connects you together with your spirits and your spirits become alive to each other and you're going, we're having a fellowship with the Spirit right now. You ever experience that? Ask God to give that little gift to you. It will blow your mind. Moving on. John uh, 14 and 15. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, I'm just going to go through this real quick because what it means here is that we take the, the, the whole idea of to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, it means that we take the opportunity to give a witness or an acknowledgement of what Jesus has done for us and to us in this new life we have in him. And here's what John's saying. We were a part of the world, and that's referring to the sinful Man, that's the world. Whenever it talks about the world in the Bible, for God so loved the world, sinners, that he sent Jesus to save them. And so here, when he says that uh, he sent his son to be the savior of the world, he's talking to be the savior, not of the planet Earth, but of the inhabitants of planet Earth, those of us who live here who need Jesus, which is, by the way, every one of us. And so Jesus came to save us. And we've been, we have been delivered from the path of destruction. Now we're on the path of life. And that is only made possible because Jesus' Son, or God's Son, Jesus, came to rescue us from eternal destruction. When Jesus was teaching in the crowds, he gave them a glimpse of what it would be like when they leave this earth to go be with him. Because, and it's, it's a warning. Get this? It's a warning to us. He says in Matthew 10, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We should take that really seriously. We have opportunities. God brings opportunities and people into our lives every day of the week for us to give a witness to, to to make an acknowledgement about who Jesus is, for us to proclaim something about Christ, for us to be able to step up and confess who Jesus is to us. And if we sit there silent, we don't say anything, God's going like, come on, man. Here it is. Just, oh, just say something. Just say, go ahead, try it. Okay, you didn't. Okay, that's okay. Listen, that's all right. We'll try tomorrow. And then we'll try next week. And we'll try 15 years from now. He keeps bringing opportunities for us to declare who Jesus is. And and we need to do that. It's really important for us to take the opportunities God's placed in our lives and make a confession of who Jesus is. Also, confession of who Jesus is 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 that it secures in our hearts that we know we're with Him. You know, one of the things I really um, love about Romans is sometimes I think the church has complicated how we become a, a Christ follower. Because we, make, we make, make this pathway that God has created, it is so clear, it is so plain in Scripture, but somehow we can kind of muddy the whole thing up and make it really kind of convoluted, and that's not at all what, what God calls us to. And so in Romans chapter... If you don't have these underlined in your Bible, underline them. Because they're really important. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's not that difficult. A child 
can do it. And that's what God's calling us to. Faith like a child. So, that's what God says. You know, it's, it's the proclamation. It's the confession of your mouth. It's the proclamation of your heart. Those are the things that God says saves you. It's not your good works. It's not how much you give to the church. It's not how much you come to church. It, it isn't how much of the Bible you've read or the Bible you know. It is your belief and your confession in Christ that saves you. End of story. God's grace. Verses 16 and 17. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God that, is, has, that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is all, because he is so also are we in the world. All right, that was a little bit, I messed that up, sorry. Read it for yourself. You'll get it straight. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to bring up one thing. Because it's one of those things that we kind of pass over quickly, I think, when we read it, because we want to stick with the love theme and the abiding theme, which is really important. But that's for the here and now. But there's going to be a there and then later on for us, all of us, there and then. And so when it says that we have confidence for the day of judgment, what exactly does that mean? Because every person... Christ follower or not will give an account for their life on the day of judgment. And just in case you didn't know, there are going to be two judgments going on when Christ comes back. One will take place at the judgment seat of Christ and the other is called the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is for all of those who have not put their faith in Christ. They will be judged on two things and two things only. Their deeds, which will be compared to Christ's deeds, which will be filthy rags thrown in the garbage. Their deeds are worthless. And the second thing is, do they have their name written in the Lamb's book of life? And it's going to be no and no. And then what is going to happen to those people at the great white throne judgment is they are going to be handed their punishment for eternity, which is going to be separation from God Almighty. And it's a literal place called hell. Don't want to go there. I don't, you know, you might have some friends to go like, hey, dude, save me a seat when you go to hell. I'll be there beside you. That ain't going to be the case. It's total separation, total separation, total separation from God and from God's presence. Total separation from any other person on the planet. You will be isolated all by yourself in your misery for eternity. Not you. I mean, you know, those other guys. Not you guys. You guys are, you guys are all going to get it because the, the other judgment that we're going to have is the, at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's for all believers. Now, understand this. That judgment is not going to um, determ- determine your eternal destiny. That's already been determined, and that's why you're at the judgment seat of Christ, because you're already in. You're in, okay? Now, some of you are going to be in more than others of you. Some of you are going to be in going like, yeah, high five, Jesus. Yeah, here, you know, the the gold, the crowns, the jewels. I'm giving that all back to you. 
You gave that to me because of what I did on earth. Here it is back to you. I'm giving it back to you. And the others of you, you all you've got is wood, stay, hay, and stubble, and it's been burnt up into a little ash over here, and so you're barely getting in by the skin of your teeth, but you're in, okay? You're in. Barely. We know because what Jesus said in Matthew 12. He said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You know when you give the uh, windshield of your car verbal abuse? Because that image bearer of God that's driving in front of you slammed on their brakes and you almost rear-ended them. And then you threw out a bunch of those careless words that you thought nobody heard. They've been heard. You know when you muttered under your breath something about your spouse that you know they didn't hear? Jesus going like, heard that dude or dudette. I heard it. You know when you don't have the fruit of the spirit of self-control and you've got your children with you and they are pulling on your pant leg or your shirt sleeve or tugging on you somehow, and you're going, Mom, 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 Linda, 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 Linda. You're like, what? Did you just shut up? Jesus goes like, no, that wasn't nice. That was pretty careless. We're going to give, I mean, those... That's just the minute stuff, the minutiae. Guess what? There's more. It's the things that we say, the things we say every day that we just don't even think about those words. They're careless words. We will give an account for them. I'm going to give you two passages of Scripture as I close up here. <clears throat> John 15, 4 through 5. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. That's why it's important to have the Spirit of God in you to produce fruit. Because apart from God, you can't do squat. Verses 9 and 8 of that same chapter. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. It's easy, folks. Love one another just as Jesus has loved you. And when you do that, your voice, your witness will be to the world and they will want to know Jesus' love because they see it manifest in your life. 
So the word of God for us today is that we have been empowered to live a holy life by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. If we take the opportunities God's given to us, we will know the will of God and it will be His will that is being done in our lives and we will be His ambassadors to the world. But it all starts with our willingness to love as God has loved us. Loving as God has loved us is the greatest expression of God to a world who so desperately needs Him. So how are you going to live and how are you going to love? Jesus is calling. He's asking you that question. You want to know? How do you know? How do you know? How do you know? The Spirit of God is how you know. And that's how you live and that's how you love. Amen? Our Father, thank you so much that you, you don't just give us a bunch of commands and a bunch of rules to obey. You actually set out in place for us how to do those things. You've given us step-by-step things. You tell us what to look for. You tell us what to strive for. You tell us the fruit that's going to be bearing in our life because the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. And I just simply pray for your people today, God, that you would move them from where they are to further down the path to look more like Jesus. For we just commit this process to you, and we want your help in it, God. We need, so desperately need your help. I pray today, God, there may be some who are sitting here who still have a heart of stone, and they need a heart of flesh. I pray that your spirit will quicken in them to understand that if we confess with our mouth and we believe on our, in our heart, it's by the confession of our mouth and the belief in our heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, that we are saved, and that they would come today and know the saving work of Jesus in their life and be empowered and by the Holy Spirit and be sealed for the day of inheritance. Come and work in their hearts. Thank you for your encouragement today, Father. We pray in your great name. Amen.